Hi, Max. Hi, Esther. So I finally lowered myself to appear on the podcast. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) So what's this week about? Are we smoking weed again? Are we talking about policing, casinos, fishing, Eric Adams fits? No, 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 no. Even even better. We're talking about state and municipal budgets. Oh, no. Don't don't worry. We're going to make it fun and interesting, like even cool. Matt's. That's even worse. Yes, friends, it's budget season. And like the weather, this is all getting pretty hot. You're listening to the Hellgate Podcast. I'm Max Ovlin-Adler, a co-owner of Hellgate, a worker-owned local news website, committed to covering New York and all its intricacies and madness and budgets. I'm joined today by worker owner Esther Wong. Hi, Max. Good to have you here, because this week we're talking about the budget, the state budget, the city budget, and how this will all impact your household budget. Later in the episode, we're going to be talking with Kim Phillips-Fine, a professor of history at Columbia University and writer of the really good book, Fear City, which is about the true story of the 1970s fiscal crisis in New York City and how it changed the city's robust social welfare state forever. We've all been living basically in the reality that that crisis created. And so with Kim, we'll be discussing the city's budget, which has to be passed by the end of June. But first, you're going to tell me about the state budget, which has to be done by the end of this month, right? Yeah, I'd love to tell you about it. So they like to pass it by the end of March, but that's not really always what happens. So why should I care about the budget? I mean, it seems kind of boring. Fair point, Esther. But New York State, it's a weird place. And by weird, I I mean, we like really don't have a functional legislative system. So let's imagine like a regular state, right? It has voters who send legislators to their state capitals to come up with laws and and do things like hold oversight hearings and figure out how to spend the state's tax money. In New York, though, we don't really do that. The governor implored lawmakers to put aside hard feelings and work with her to make the massive $227 billion budget a reality. So basically, over the past several decades, New York's governors, who mostly have the last name Cuomo, have devised a system by which every major decision that the state government makes has to be done through the budget. So why would they do that? Glad you asked. So for a while, it was really a necessity for a divided legislature between like upstate Republicans and downstate Dems who, you know, there were some Republicans downstate, but it was mostly Democrats. And the only thing that really ever passed each year was the budget. So if you wanted something done, it had to go in there. Otherwise, like nothing passed. And during the budget process, the governor plays a pretty big role. Um, And this gave successive governors um, the taste for, like, even more power. And eventually, they liked the budget process so much and doing everything through the budget that they settled on some, like, really circular, bizarre reasoning, which was that anything that involves money, which has some impacts on the state finances, which, you know, is, like, pretty much any legislation, when you really think about it, you know, that should be done through the budget because it involves money. And that's where the money comes from. So by using that reasoning, they pretty much killed all legislating in Albany, meaning that the governor could just like kind of veto legislation saying, hey, this is a cool piece of legislation that you passed, 
but it involves money and that should be done through the budget. I have to be cognizant that there's a budget process and when bills come to my desk when there's not a budget allocation behind them, then we're going to take it back to the process and with respect. So why don't we just pass major legislation through the budget? Right. I mean, sometimes we do, but that would almost make too much sense, right? So instead, the governor can also chuck things from the budget by being like, oh, ha, huh, it seems as though you snuck a law in here. Get that the fuck out of here. This has nothing to do with money and shouldn't be in the budget. It's kind of a wild system. And the more powerful the governor, uh, the more they could kind of just like disregard whatever the legislature wants. So for a lot of years, the budget was hashed out behind closed doors by the governor and the leaders of the state Senate, who is usually a Republican, and the leader of the state assembly, who is a Democrat. And they would like come out of a room, literally, they would just all go into a room together and they'd emerge with minutes to go before the budget was due and then just like plop it on legislators' tables and be like, all right, everyone vote on it. And, and that's it. Governor Cuomo leaves behind a legislative legacy that's been criticized for years. The so-called three men in a room process where the governor and two legislative leaders negotiate state business behind closed doors. Former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara mocked the three men in a room style of governing. At a speech, he said in part, quote, why three men? Can there be a woman? Do they always have to be white? How small is the room that they can only fit three men? And then pretty much the legislature has nothing to do the rest of the year. And so usually they'd spend it just like getting bored and doing crimes like taking bribes or like having outside work that directly impacts legislation that they're pushing. So a lot of uh, people went to jail during this era because the legislature just like didn't do anything. Breaking news, former New York State Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver found guilty on corruption charges. He was once one of the most powerful people in Albany. Tonight, he's convicted of fraud, extortion and money laundering charges. So this sounds like a totally functional system, but I am looking at Wikipedia where I do all my research. And it says that actually the Democrats have won majorities in the past decade. So why does this system continue? Basically, Trump gets elected in 2016. We all remember that. Democrats mobilize and defeat the Democrats that Andrew Cuomo has gotten to give power to Republicans. Not getting into that, but that was what was going on. And then in 2018, Democrats get total control of the governorship, the state Senate and the state assembly. Shouldn't that mean that they can begin legislating now instead of going through this weird budget process? Right. Yeah. I mean, you would think so. But there's a guy named Andrew Cuomo in there and he does not like the idea of a fast moving progressive state legislature that kind of holds him responsible for propping up a bunch of Republicans in the state legislature. So he sticks with this weird budget process. Um, he pulls off a bunch of like really wild tricks to bottle up legislation into the budget. And this is how the state runs until 2021, when Andy gets into a bit of trouble. Uh, he tries to get out of it. He passes a really progressive budget in 2021 to try to take some of the heat off himself. And there's like things like a millionaire's tax, uh, a huge fund of money for undocumented workers. But a lot of the trouble that Cuomo found himself in, you know, not only had to do with how he allegedly uh, sexually harassed people, but how he treated a lot of legislators like he literally terrorized some state lawmakers and called them up late at night 
And by the time it came for anyone to have his back, you know, he looked around and no one was there. So Cuomo resigns and then we get Kathy Hochul. So we can become a regular state now, right? Where legislators can actually legislate. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Ha 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 ha. All right. All right. So we're like far too broken a system to like even allow something like that to happen. But, you know, what actually has changed is the balance of power here. Like Andrew Cuomo was born in the darkness of Albany and he could like break the back of people challenging him. Hochul, you know, the legislature is not showing all that much respect these days. The nomination is lost. And with that, Hector LaSalle will not be New York's next chief judge. Now, this is the first time in history that the governor's pick for chief judge has been rejected by the Senate Judiciary Committee. So this year, you've got the governor and the legislature kind of punching at almost near equal weights. And they're working together on the important stuff, right? Like housing, funding the MTA, keeping people in their homes while facing an unprecedented eviction crisis. That's all happening, right? Yeah, absolutely. Total harmony and agreement, democracy in action. New York no longer uh, completely irreparably uh, corrupt and damaged. Okay, so obviously that's not true. And the way that the budget gets done is that the governor releases a proposed budget. That happens usually in the beginning of February. Then the state Senate and state assembly each release their own proposed budgets in the beginning of March. Usually the governor takes those budgets and then deposits them directly into the trash. Uh, the governor asks for a few things that the state legislature like really, really wants, puts them in the budget, then gives legislators a few hours to look over the thousands and thousands of pages and makes them immediately vote on it. And that has been called for a long time. What we, we would call a big ugly. Big ugly. Now, when they say the big ugly, what it means is when lawmakers scramble to cut last minute deals and to tie up loose ends. But this year, Hochul can't really do that, right? Yeah, it's like she doesn't have that power. She doesn't have a big enough coalition to make the legislature just like accept whatever she wants. Um, what she wants is a huge housing construction boom and the ability to override local zoning, especially on Long Island. Um, the legislature is like not so hot on that and wants instead to strengthen tenant protections and introduce a massive housing voucher program. Hochul wants to fund the MTA through regressive taxes on working New Yorkers, while the legislature wants those taxes to be put on the wealthy. The governor wants to hike tuition at CUNY and SUNY, and the legislature is like not crazy about that. Uh, weirdly enough, everyone agrees that Belmont Racetrack should get a bunch of money. And Hochul wants to do things that are like pretty DOA in the legislature, like lifting the charter school cap and further rolling back bail reform in the state. Uh, for that effort, you could see Hellgate podcast episode two. So what happens now? Yeah, it's interesting because like, I don't know, we're, we're kind of in uncharted waters. Obviously, they have that April 1st deadline, but that's not a real thing uh, because the governor could just kind of issue a declaration saying they need more time and the government will stay funded. So this could drag on. But the governor and state legislature leaders are right now like hashing it out. Um, and Hochul is trying to drum up support by clogging the airwaves during Knicks games. You want to live in a New York that's safe, where you can raise a family and not get priced out. Kathy Hochul understands that, and her budget helps make it happen. So how does all of this impact the city's budget? Where does our gem-loving mayor get involved? So the city has to wait until the state has the budget set because a lot of city funding 
is contingent on what the state decides and how much money they're going to give them, how they're going to like pay for the subways and things like that. And Eric Adams has already proposed a really kind of like bare bones, austerity driven budget for the city, which would cut money for libraries, schools, cut the city's workforce so it can't do things like find housing for people or process food stamp requests, uh, things of that nature. So that's what I'm actually going to talk to Professor Ken Phillips Fine about now. All right. So what am I sticking around for? I can leave, right? No, no, no. Not yet. You got to tell people about our spring subscription sale. Love Hellgate and want to support us. Love a Hellgate hat. Great news. Hellgate spring sale is going on right now. From now through March 27th, you can save $25 when you get an annual subscription at the supporter level. That means you also get commenting privileges and unlimited articles and a union-made hat. Perfect for the beautiful spring weather ahead of us. It's $100 value, now just $75. But wait, there's more. You can now subscribe at the annual Hellgate Believer level for $50 off. That means commenting, unlimited articles, that cool hat, and four exclusive quarterly events, all just for $150 a year. What a deal. So subscribe today at hellgatenyc.com slash products to take advantage of this spring deal. But do it today because these savings won't last. The sale ends March 27th, so get those deals and those cool Hellgate hats. Thanks, Esther. Now I'm going to talk with Columbia professor Kim Phillips-Fine about the city's budget, how the state might impact it, and why Eric Adams is so protective of his quote-unquote high-income earners. Hi, Kim. Thanks so much for having me. So we've been hearing for months, or at least since the Adams administration took office, that New York City is in a precarious fiscal situation and that we're heading towards a recession. But bank collapses aside or some weird stuff coming from the Fed, that hasn't really quite happened yet. And it always seems like a little bit like, you know, the sky is falling. How weird is New York's fiscal situation currently compared to, you know, where we were a few years ago under Mayor Bill de Blasio? If we leave this era of low interest rates and the speculation that that has helped to create what's going to happen to the entire economy, nobody really knows. But specifically in New York, there's a couple of major areas of uncertainty which have to do with COVID and its aftermath. And I think first is a lot of the questions that people have about the long-term impact of remote work and what that's going to mean for New York and for cities across the country. And I think a lot of this has to do especially with a sense of great sensitivity about the people who are most likely to be doing remote work, who are upper income professionals and what is their role in the city? What is it going to be going forward? The other is that New York has gotten a lot of money from the federal government over the period of the pandemic. What's going to happen as it stops? Will the programs that it's been funding continue in some measure? Um, Will they not? Will other revenue sources will be created? So I think in a way, a lot of the uncertainty has to do with things that have been stirred up by the pandemic, both actual economic and fiscal changes and also the kind of some of the underlying political and moral even questions that the pandemic raised for the city. 
Right. So, you know, the Adams administration has used the term crisis. They've they've really kind of used some really kind of fatalistic language. How does how does this compare to like what you wrote about in your book, uh, your excellent book, Fear City, about the late 1970s leading into the early 80s and the, you know, very well publicized fiscal crisis that New York faced then? The whole situation is really very different from the 1970s and the easy comparison with the 70s as a moment when things were very difficult in New York. Actually, they were very difficult for really different reasons. I think in the 70s, you know, you had a a huge decline in the city's population. About 10 percent of the city left between 1970 and 1980. The population shifts we have seen now are just nothing like that at all. You saw a really a, a profound shift in the nature of the city's economy at that time, a shift away from manufacturing and with the newer jobs that were being created in the service sector, not paying as much as the older ones had. Again, I just don't think that what we have seen so far in terms of remote work is anything like that type of elemental change in what the city is. And then finally, in a lot of particular ways, the city is not burrowing in the same way that it was in the late 60s and early 1970s. Its short-term debt is just not, there's no comparison between the two moments. That's what really created the fiscal crisis itself. And the situation is just really different right now. If anything, it seems to me that part of the problem of New York right now is that it's so expensive to live here and that that's actually causing people to leave. And it's um, that that is just a very different dynamic and should be addressed within a different set of policies than what was happening in the 1970s. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting if you look at this kind of like fatalism or cynicism regarding the city, where actually a lot of it does seem to be coming from the business community. You've got like big real estate wants to push this narrative. And then even this week, the unveiling of the new iHeart New York logo, which is We Heart NYC. And it was really couched in this like very like um, we got to fix it together. And it's, you know, again, touting none of the actual fixes that you were talking about in terms of like making this a less expensive place to live. Right. Well, I think it's it's very interesting. Um, we hear a lot about the what's going to happen to Midtown and downtown and to property values there. And I know that that's of a great a great concern to the people who own that property. But I think that the impact in relationship to the rest of the city is just more complicated than they think. And also, I think today, in contrast to the seventies, the business community of the seventies got a lot of praise for its heroism in stepping in to save the city, quote unquote. And the business community in the 70s did actually do some things like it prepaid taxes at one point so the city would have that money to pay bills. But I just think that today the part of the tension, as you point out, is that the things that the business community wants to do, it's not really clear that those are the things that will help address the problems of New Yorkers now, or even more narrowly, the fiscal problems that the city hypothetically might run into. So you've um, written recently an article for the New York Review of Books about uh, a term that Eric Adams likes to use, which is my high income earners, which is he likes to look out for the people that pay, you know, the majority of New York City's taxes, uh, which are the the millionaires and, and billionaires. And that he has come out against further taxing these individuals, quote unquote, scaring them away, 
New York did raise taxes on millionaires in 2020. There's proposals, I believe, in both houses right now of the state legislature to once again raise taxes to fill um, specifically the missing money from the MTA. Has it borne out that high income earners are leaving the city? Is this fear that Adams has at all grounded in reality? So the, the Fiscal Policy Institute has done some studies on this and there were people who left in 2020 that probably had nothing to do with taxes and everything to do with the pandemic. And it should be noted, not just the pandemic and fear about the virus, but also the school closures and everything that followed in the wake of the pandemic. And so people left in 2020. The number of believing really shrank in 2021, though. And so it doesn't seem like tax increases have driven a greater exodus out of the city. Also, there are, I think, more millionaires now, I believe, but that's because the pandemic has been so extraordinarily kind to people at the upper end of the income bracket. And I think in general, people greatly overstate the capacity and willingness of people, of even very wealthy people, to simply up and move. They're not just, you know, utility and income maximizers. They have families. They have social connections. They are part of a cultural and social life in the city that you cannot just reproduce in some other low-tax city in some other part of the country, Uh, not to mention that their businesses are tied to this location. I just don't see the outpouring um, that it often seems that Adams is warning of. It's interesting. I, I think in some ways the pandemic really focused attention on this group of people because remote work and because There was this specter at the beginning, especially, which was so powerful in the city that anybody with resources and means would just up and leave. And even as that reality has not come to pass, that fear of the mobility of the extremely rich kind of highlighted the way that the city's image is so dependent on this group. Yeah, I always feel like it's a little overblown for for whenever you say like, oh, these, you know, wealthy people will leave New York City. They'll go to low tax states like uh, Florida or Texas. And at the end of the day, these are like still New Yorkers who, when they go to places like that, are like, oh, uh, really far from Central Park and a Knicks game and the Metropolitan Opera and all of these things that like I like to do. Right. How does Eric Adams approach you know, compared to other mayors when they face economic headwinds. You know, obviously the 70s is a really extreme example, but, you know, Bloomberg as well had to deal with a a massive economic downturn immediately when he took office. Thinking about 9-11 and its aftermath, you know, that was another point where there was a lot of fear about what would happen to downtown in particular and a sense of needing to rally to save the city economically. And the politics of that situation were very different. But it is interesting. I think Adams is much more invested in or much more willing to talk about and invoke the specter of crisis. Bloomberg, in that earlier moment, was really committed to saying there's not going to be a crisis. New York is strong. We are committed to the city. And that was different. I mean, saving New York at that point was also a cause of the nation. All of a sudden, it was a tricky politics to that, too. However, it is striking how different it is now. Um, It reflects the political divisions in the country at large. I mean, you could say something like an argument about how this can be a moment for rethinking federal aid to cities. This can be a moment for rethinking federal aid to New York in particular. Does the federal government have any interest in 
protecting the resources of the city of New York. You could frame this in terms of the questions about immigration, which have also, you know, the Adams administration has been trying to get a longer commitment from the federal government and from Albany to help to integrate asylum seekers and refugees into the city. But in so doing, he's also been kind of trafficking in a sort of competitive, um, you know, the refugees are going to be bankrupting the city unless we get this support. I mean, the whole thing is very tricky, but you could, you know, you could have a way of describing the situation that places the social services of the city and presents them as something that's in the interests of the country as a whole, a project of uplift and mobility and of a humane way of coping with the problems of the world and of people around the world who are coming to the United States in pursuit of better life, and also a, a way of transcending the conflicts of the pandemic. And why is that not in the national interest of the country as a whole? Yeah, I mean, speaking of this kind of different narrative that you could shape around social services and what's in the best interest of the city, you know, the opposition to these cuts, how have they taken shape and what has kind of influenced the efforts that have been are being made? So for one thing, I think this situation is actually still evolving and we'll see how many of the cuts endure in the final package that Adams puts forward. I mean, the, on, on the one hand, I think there actually is a left in the city sort of spearheaded by DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, um, that has been very focused on Albany and on state taxes. And I think that kind of makes sense, given that the state has a lot more leeway to set taxes than the city does. DSA both has this core of portive representatives in Albany and has an analysis of things that's focused on the importance of Albany. So that actually, I think, is a difference. I think also there's a compared to more compared to the 70s, the the relationship of the unions and the union's desire to find a way to get contracts that will make up some of what their members have lost in inflation over the years. We haven't really seen them at the forefront of a oppositional politics at this point. It's so interesting because in your book, you know, you really trace how the state was able to take away a lot of power and independence from the city in reaction to kind of these more working class forces that were kind of predominating in the city. And then, you know, we're kind of now at the end of a 40 year project of kind of filtering back up to the state legislature level of, you know, some of these more um, radical working class oriented politics finally making it to Albany things, you know, not only unified democratic control, but things like millionaire's tax, weed legalization, things like that. However, they still have been pretty reticent to hand any of that power back to New York City. Is that something that New York will ever get back or will just kind of constantly be playing this game of, you know, tin cup to the state, even though we're the economic engine and, um, you know, then having to decide our budget based on what, you know, a bunch of people in Albany decided? That broader dynamic that you describe, that has been the case throughout the city's history, really. And the city has never really had full home rule with regard to its ability to determine its own taxes outside of the property tax, which has always set up this dynamic where it's very dependent on Albany. The biggest exception to that in some ways was the 1930s, because that is when there was this outpouring of federal money 
And the city was able to capture a lot of that through Roosevelt's connections to New York, through LaGuardia's connections to Roosevelt, and so on. So at different points, questions about this home rule issue have come to the forefront in city politics. In New York City's history, it's sometimes come up in terms of in the older days, it came up in terms of anti-democratic machine politics or different different forces raised this set of questions. But I don't really see anyone putting that forward now. So I don't know what would change that. Um, I, I suppose it would change if there were a really intense set of conflicts between the city and Albany, or if there was a federal government that had a very different kind of urban agenda that would then offer the city an alternative to Albany in terms of the question of how taxes are distributed. You know, in a way, cities are fragile fiscal creatures. The city's power to tax incomes is greatly limited compared to the state or the federal government because there is always this threat of mobility. And certainly at the high end, you could imagine that that would kick in at some point. You know, you can imagine like a fiscal nest or something like that, like a, a set of nesting dolls. And in some ways, moving the cost meant for some of the most fundamental programs upwards is ultimately what makes the most sense and would be the most stable, not just for New York, but for cities across the country. I mean, even policies like, you know, not that this is really on the horizon at this moment, but more universal health care, those things actually would affect the city's budget because they would shift costs around Medicaid and the like. More than getting um, greater power for the city to set its own taxes, it may be that thinking about what the relationship is of the city and its costs to the state and federal governments and asking about spending priorities at those levels, you know, especially you know, the, na- the national government and questions about the military budget come in here as well. And it goes back even to the framework of the post-9-11 moment. What is in the the national interest. Our cities, is the health of a city like New York, is that in some ways in the interests of the country as a whole, or is it just a question of local home rule, as it were? So I think you can make the case it's actually in the interest of the security and freedom of the whole country. And that's might be what you would need to do to change some of these dynamics in a more lasting way. Right. If even in their, you know, heroic but tacitly fallen states, things like you know, CUNY, public hospitals, things that the city still spends quite a lot of money on and and are lifelines to a lot of its residents. These are just not even on the table for cities in other countries. And, you know, on top of that, the state often views those things as um, expendable or or subject to fiscal discipline, you know, in the case of CUNY. Um, Meanwhile, the ceiling's falling down. So when you zoom out even further than we normally do, we go, oh, my God, you know, what madness that we even have to fight over this. Yeah. No, I think in a way that shift in perspective is what really counts. Well, Kim, thanks so much for speaking with us. This has been really helpful. And uh, we'd love to stay in touch as the city nears its budget. um, And then, you know, we find out how much uh, gets cut and where it gets cut and uh, what, what resistance might form around those cuts. Yeah, well, thank you. And thank you to everyone at Hellgate. It's a great development for the city, I think. All right, that's it for this week's Hellgate podcast. Hellgate is a worker-owned, subscriber-funded news outlet covering New York City. 
subscribe during our spring sale now through March 27th. Check out the deals at HelvingNYC.com. Our editorial team is Adlin Jackson, Nick Pinto, Max Rivlin-Nadler, Christopher Robbins, Katie Way, and me, Esther Wong. Nadia Tykolster is our business manager, and Lauren Vespoli is our podcast producer. Our theme music is by Groupwork. You can find their music on Bandcamp and all streaming platforms. This podcast is engineered by Crutchface Studio. During the week, don't forget to check out HellgateNYC.com for daily reporting, in-depth investigations, and more stories about New York City. We'll see you next time.